Welcome to the Film Fredonia podcast. I'm Roderick Heath, founder and author of the website Film Fredonia. This week I'm going to be talking about one of the most admired and controversial directorial debuts in movie history, Quentin Tarantino's 1992 film Reservoir Dogs. And then there was Tarantino. Not many movies can lay claim to rewiring the zeitgeist, but Quentin Tarantino's first two films, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, 1994, mapped a major continent of early 1990s cinema. Tarantino's trumpet first blew at the Sundance Film Festival and culminated at Cannes. The one-time video store know-it-all turned movie world wannabe had made one attempt at filmmaking, My Best Friend's Birthday, in the late 1980s, but it never saw release because of a severely damaged last reel. When he emerged properly with Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino suddenly became a pop-cultural lightning rod, as most everyone who was young and hungry for a hard-edged cinema and other permutations of alternative culture in the early 1990s latched onto Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction with fierce and personal fervour. Suddenly every film school student and their dog was making films laced with grungy violence, rapid-fire dialogue and movie referencing, and a new breed of creator-empresario began to emerge. If Jim Jamush had staked out the turf for the modern indie film mode, and Steven Soderbergh provided the fanfare, Tarantino gave it an adrenaline shot. It was hardly as if Hollywood wasn't making gritty, violent, smart-aleck thrillers at the time, not with the likes of Die Hard 1988 and Lethal Weapon 1987, Recent Memories, and Tarantino emerged in the midst of a revival of film noir laced with retro flavour that kicked off several years earlier. But there was much more to the Tarantino phenomenon than mere revivalism or swagger. Tarantino's arrival marked the official dawn of self-conscious postmodernism in Hollywood cinema, replete with fancy-pants notions like intertextuality and death of the author recontextualization, as well as a non-linear approach to screen narrative of a kind mainstream cinema screens had scarcely deigned to employ since the early 1970s. The 90s indie movie craze seems like something of a lost ideal now, particularly since the downfall of Harvey Weinstein, who fostered much of the movement in large part on the back of Tarantino's success for the then-respected Miramax films. Several of Tarantino's major rivals in the ranks of those often cited as today's most important American filmmakers, including Paul Thomas Anderson, Sofia Coppola and Wes Anderson, ran with aspects of Tarantino's example to leverage their own beginnings with acts of calculatedly ironic nostalgia and pop culture riffing, whilst many of his talented, more earnest contemporaries fell away. Tarantino was hardly the first filmmaker to erect his movies in part as Parthenons dedicated to the movie gods. The French New Wave and the 70s movie brats had already done the same thing. The open secret about classic Hollywood filmmaking was that the vast bulk of movies were remakes and remixes of others. Take the way an esteemed classic like Howard Hawks' Only Angels Have Wings, 1939, leans on a plot quote from one of its screenwriter Jules Firthman's earlier films, China Seas, 1935, whilst Hawks himself happily ripped himself off many times. But Tarantino set about drawing the eye to his. The quotation marks all but neon lit. 
his carefully chosen musical cues and references framed with such totemic inference, it seemed as if some Ennio Morricone music cue had dragged him out of some deep emotional crisis during his days in the video store. For Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino's touchstones, including Ringo Lamb's City on Fire, 1987, Joseph Sargent's The Taking of Pelham 123, 1974, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle, 1950, and Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, 1956, weren't just evident, but flaunted. But there was still something bizarre and thrilling about this new cinematic voice regardless, one that remains difficult to pin down after a quarter century of familiarity and endless imitation, relating to how, despite his film's magpie's nest compositing, Tarantino's touch proved unique. The opening scene of Reservoir Dogs still illustrates that touch in all its unruly, arresting confidence. A group of eight men, all dressed in sharp black suits, seated around a table in a diner, gabbling on as they finish off breakfast and prepare for a day's work. Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, Mr. Blue, Eddie Bunker, Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, Mr. Brown, Tarantino, Joe Cabot, Lawrence Tierney, and his son, Nice Guy Eddie, Chris Penn. The blankness of identification and dress is in aid of criminal enterprise, as in the taking of Pelham 123, but has another, more unusual dimension. Here are eight characters well and truly found by their author, out to prove their vitality in the face of an itchy delete button. Dialogue comes on as a frenetic stew of character definition, pop culture theory and excavation, and socio-political argument, good humour and fraternity laced with macho showmanship, and signals of asocial reflexes and simmering aggression. Where a more classical noir film would use such a scene to make a distinct point about the characters as social animals, Tarantino engages them as both creations in a movie and of a movie. There is no longer a sharp divide between observant diagnosis and analysis of generic function. Hollywood had dedicated itself assiduously to trying to stay with it since the late 1960s, but Tarantino's arrival suddenly declared the arrival of a hip culture happy in sifting through the detritus of mass-produced entertainment. Tarantino made sure the audience knew who he was by casting himself as Brown, who delivers his memorable analysis of Madonna's song Like a Virgin for the edification of his fellows in identifying its covert theme as one of feminine sexual liberation confronted by new experience in encountering a prick colossal enough to cause her pain again. Hell, some might argue that's a fitting metaphor for Tarantino's entire relationship with his viewing audience. More cogently, the notion that all entertainment has subtext and can be interrogated until it takes on new form was hardly novel in 1992, but Tarantino found a way here not just to make his audience aware of it, to make it an actual dramatic value. Tarantino was offering American genre films revenge on all those smart-aleck new waivers who collected Hollywood cinematic tropes in their deconstructive tales of Parisian losers. And yet at the same time, he was subjecting the genre movie to another perversion, dragging it into the intimate conversational world of indie film. Tarantino disposed of any worry that a film image could sustain a multiplicity of reference points, that any moment could at once be a movie quote, a plot point, a proper dramatic idea, and a meta joke. The dialogue immediately betrays ardour for the twists of American tough guy Argot, a tradition going back to the likes of Damon Runyon and Ring Lardner. Now the lexicon runs the gamut between fat boy attitude, 
This is the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. To Muhammad Ali, you shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize. The characters who utter these two lines, white and pink, define themselves immediately by these different cultural lexicons, by generations and by ideals of wit. The amicable breakfast becomes charged with actual tension and disagreement as Pink refuses to contribute to the tip for the waitress, citing personal scruples. I don't tip. White sensibility counters Pink's cynical distaste for being expected to operate according to a social nicety and cough up a dollar. The dynamic the two characters will enact in the oncoming drama is stated in the clash between White's empathy and Pink's suspiciousness, laced with cultural inference. Pink makes excellent points about the arbitrariness and unfairness of rewarding some workers over others in a mostly thoroughly Darwinian capitalist system. White has the vote of audience sympathy in observing unfairness doesn't preclude the necessity of the gesture for those benefiting from it, regardless. Joe's gruff decisiveness ends the conversation with the firmness of old-school patriarchy. The rights and wrongs of a social expectation don't matter nearly so much as the fulfilment of it for its own sake, to maintain an equilibrium that allows them all to operate. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you, cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in, but normally I would never do this. Never mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn buck like everybody else. Thank you. This vignette, droll and incisive as incidental characterization and a dissection of a socio-political attitude, also anticipates the crew's borderline pathetic need for Joe to turn up and play the decisive daddy. But we're also on the countdown towards the moment when the gun will be aimed at Joe, and down daddy goes. The opening title sequence helped cement the film's mystique. Tarantino individually identifies his actors as an ensemble of hand-picked prose, a description that also encompasses the parts they play, strutting in slow motion, through the blandest of conceivable Los Angeles locales. The George Baker selection's jaunty, jangly song Little Green Bag on the soundtrack. Tarantino's ironic approach to movie scoring, using upbeat retro songs and movie score extracts from disreputable wings of pop culture to contrast moments of savage violence and sanguine cool, is now so familiar a movie strategy as to be a cliché. But at the time, the greater part of its impact lay in a similar quality to grunge rock's arrival in pop music. It was a complete rejection of the slick pretenses of 80s film styles. Tarantino's visual method, whilst hardly antiquated, similarly cut across the grain of what film style had largely been in the previous decade, instead somehow managing to shoot the interior of the warehouse where most of the tale unfolds, as if it's a wealth of space out of a western, the physical attitudes of his actors allowed to hold the weight of the compositions, just as their mouths carry the weight of the dialogue. The violent undercurrent of the opening scene's jocularity, I changed my mind, shoot this piece of shit, is fully exposed after the title sequence. Perhaps an hour or so later, or even less, White is now found driving a car with Orange a bloody mess on the back seat, shot in the belly during the getaway from an armed robbery of a diamond merchant's building. Oh, I was supposed to scare the shit out of me, Larry. I'm gonna die, I know it. Oh, excuse me, I didn't realize you had a degree in medicine. Uh, uh, are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? Answer me, please. Are you a doctor? Huh? No, I'm not. Okay. 
An incidental detail here proves endlessly consequential, as Orange calls White by his real name, Larry. White's sense of friendly responsibility for the belly-shot young team member becomes a point of honour overriding White's other tribal responsibilities. Tarantino obviously understood one essential aspect of classical tragedy. The spiral into all-consuming calamity is not just caused by clashes of character, but by a fatal inability to reconcile colliding value systems. The white criminal underclass the crew represents is expertly observed in a way that highlights their tribal behaviour, whilst many of his subsequent films would deal with the interlocution of tribes. They loaned a crisp, professionalised glamour by their black-and-white attire, which they certainly wouldn't possess if they were dressed like telephone repairmen or the like. If Reservoir Dogs is ultimately a tale of faking it till you make it, a legend of show business expressed through crime-flecked drag, Tarantino reverses the traffic just far enough to lend his cadre of hoods the aura of movie stars. Ironic, perhaps, given that Reservoir Dogs put together what might have been the best ensemble of actors for a crime movie since The Maltese Falcon, 1941. Old pros Keitel and Tierney, matched by squirrely young talents who had gained notice in an odd sprawl of 80s movies, as well as crime novelist Bunker with his laid-back aura of authenticity, and Tarantino himself, his young, smooth-cheeked visage, resembling a pre-transformation portrait of the Joker as found in the three-toned prints of old Batman comic books. Keitel helped get the film made, along with another hero from the American New Wave, Monty Hellman. Keitel's presence linked Reservoir Dogs with Martin Scorsese's equally showy, gritty early works, whilst Tierney, an actor whose genuine off-screen ferocity and bullishness had foiled his career and was still intimidating Tarantino during the shoot, gave a palpable connection to the days of classic noir. Hellman might well have felt a shock of recognition in the kinship between Tarantino's project and his takes on the Western, the shooting and Ride the Whirlwind, both 1966, which similarly subjected genre canards to a deconstructive, vaguely existential whim. Tarantino had consciously written a film that could be executed on the smallest budget possible, so the bulk of the movie unfolds in a warehouse somewhere in the L.A. hinterland, Joe's base of operations for the heist and rendezvous for the crew. Largely thanks to Keitel's presence, the budget proved big enough to allow punchy episodes of chase and gunplay, in flashbacks to pink, white and orange's escapes from the pursuing cops, although the actual heist remains only reported in dialogue. The story as it proceeds from there is exceptionally simple, even as the connections and suggestions ripple far and wide. Brown and blue are dead. Pink, white, orange and blonde make it to the warehouse, although orange soon passes out. Pink thinks the heist was a disaster because the crew was set up by an informer, hidden somewhere in their ranks. White is sceptical and holds blonde more responsible for unleashing a bloodbath. Blonde has taken a cop Marvin Nash, Kirk Boltz, captive and the three men beat him. When Pink and White depart to find the stolen diamonds Pink stashed, Blonde goes much further, 
and cutting off Nash's ear, and planning to set him on fire. But Blund is shot dead by the revived Orange, who actually is the informant, and explains that although the warehouse is being watched by police, none will come until Joe shows up. When Joe and Eddie arrive, Eddie kills Nash, and disbelieves Orange's hastily concocted story that Blonde was planning to rip them off, whilst Joe is now sure that Orange is the rat. White shoots Joe and Eddie rather than let them kill his friend, but is mortally wounded himself by Eddie. Along the way, Tarantino pauses to relate how the various members of the crew were drawn together, with White and Blonde clearly old pals of the Cabot clan and sometime employees, particularly Blonde, real name Vic Vega, who just got through a stint in prison after refusing to turn Stooley on the Cabots when he was arrested in a locale filled with their stolen merchandise. I'd like to have him in. You know he can handle himself, and you damn sure know you can trust him. Hey, Vic, how would you feel about pulling a job with about five other guys? I'd feel great about it. <laughs> Orange is seen going through a kind of performative boot camp to master the streetwise act required to fool the genuine criminals. Notably, Joe and Eddie have names and identity as employers, as captains of their little industry, that the others are denied. Joe's office, with its wood-panelled walls and elephant tusks and maps of old Venice, is a cheerfully vulgar seat of power, as signified by eras, tribal, medieval, and Victorian. Pink's sarcastic commentary it would appear that waitresses are just one of the many groups the government fucks on the arse on a regular basis, makes a play of seeming rudely sympathetic, but is actually shorn of class feeling, and filled instead with yuppie arrogance, the looking out for number one philosophy at a zenith. This is expressed in many ways throughout the narrative, even by White who declares that the choice between doing ten years and taking out some stupid motherfucker ain't no choice at all. White is, however, genuinely shocked and vehement over Blonde's cold and exacting execution of bystanders and staff in The Diamond Merchants. What the fuck are you talking about? That fucking shooting spree! In the store, remember? Oh, fuck them. They set off the alarm. They deserve what they got. You almost killed me! Asshole! The rogue psychopath is as much odd man out in the company of professional criminals as the rat because his purposes have no connection to any rational aim of their business. And yet it becomes clear Blonde's brutality is rooted in the same deep hatred for the forces of justice and officialdom. The flashback depicting his meeting with Joe and Eddie commences with a joshing session, as Eddie gleefully provokes Blonde by suggesting he's turned queer after being raped by black men in prison. This results in the two men wrestling on the office floor as if they're ten-year-olds. Blonde's cobra-like gaze could harbour genuine rage, or just a sociopath's indifference, and possibly Blonde has become a machine for victimising the world in response to the way he feels like he has been victimised. Tarantino here was taking up an aspect of the gangster film following on from the Godfather films, as this genre depends to a large part on the viewer's identification with the most palatable choice amongst bastards. White seems comparatively upright, sticking up for his friends and operating according to his instincts and experience. The flashback to his and Orange's flight from the cops reaches its punchline as it's revealed Orange was shot by an armed woman whose car they tried to hijack, and he shot her dead in reflexive response. White's conviction Orange is okay is then based not just in guilt or amity, but what he experienced and what he's afraid of. 
knowing full well it could be him, slowly bleeding to death. The surface interchangeableness of the crew is then steadily contradicted, but they mostly share a very similar identity as white plebeian criminals, members of the tribe. There might even be a sneaky joke about this in regards to their dress, meant to evoke Jewish diamond buyers. They maintain strict internecine cones and forms of recognition, marked out by brusque contempt for non-members, including, of course, gross racism. They're also members of pop-cultural camps, however, delighting in yardsticks of cool, toughness and erotic appeal, many of which cut across traditional borders of social identity as well as old-fashioned notions of dramatic integrity. White confirms both his age and his ideal when he quotes Muhammad Ali, even as he muses contemptuously on the black men he's known. Orange clearly loves Silver Surfer. They're all hot for Honey West and Pam Greer characters. Most old-school screenwriters and directors would have portrayed these characters as ignorant on this level because their terms of reference would have been their own working-class parents or friends. Goddard was obsessed with defining the no-man's land between his idea of real life and the art forms that obsessed him. Tarantino saw no such space, not any more. The lens of pop culture is how most people experience the world now, just as they once absorbed national or religious folklores to situate their identities and process emotional experience. And so the night the lights went out in Georgia is discussed with Talmudic intensity, and debates about the actors of obscure TV shows sit cheek by jowl with plotting a robbery and personal ruminations on sex and race. I'm high on Superficially, Reservoir Dogs stands with Jackie Brown, 1997, as Tarantino's most quotidian, grounded work, and yet it's flecked with nascent aspects of surrealism and absurdism. Tarantino's gore-mongering scruffiness was already laced with distinct hints of hyperbole. The lake of blood that forms about Orange prefigures the outlandish bloodletting seen in the likes of the Kill Bill diptych, 2003-4, and Django Unchained, 2012. Connections form with Tarantino's subsequent films. Blonde is the brother of Pulp Fiction's Vincent Vega. White's ex-lady has the same name as the heroine of True Romance, hinting he could be the older, battle-scarred version of that film's hero, suggesting a free-floating mythological world in the offing. Pulp Fiction would land as hard as it did in large part because it moved a step beyond Reservoir Dogs in simultaneous celebration and mockery of an atomization of hipster subcultures and the iconography of a raised-by-TV generation, offering a fictional agora where S&M freaks, hippie dope dealers, beatnik assassins, blaxploitation heavies, body piercers, retro freaks, and the byproducts of war in suburbia all meet and are diagrammed according to possible usefulness in terms of B-movie storylines. The use of barely-remembered classic rock ditties on the soundtrack often deployed with sarcastic invocation that relates to the on-screen drama in a fashion like Greek chorus gone funkalicious is justified by the character's penchant for the radio show K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. The show's host is played by deadpan 90s comedy hero Stephen Wright, whose Phillips of hype and commercialism the way he pronounces behemoth in an ad for a monster truck rally is an endless delight, feel like broadcasts from another planet. One of Tarantino's less noted precursors was Jim McBride's 1983 remake of Goddard's Breathless, 
which pulled off a similar feat in translating new wave conceits out of the hypercultural climes of Paris to suburban Los Angeles. Perhaps the least analysed side of Tarantino is the ironic realist, particularly in his first three films. His work was deeply rooted in his feel for L.A., his love of its sunstruck streets and the rhythms of its downtown conversations. The film's deeply cynical contemplation of a criminal underworld as a stand-in for urban bohemianism and the artistic demimond proved, despite not really focusing on such things, weirdly attuned to the mood of riotous dissent in L.A. at the time. Tarantino's later work hinges much more overtly on a dance between aesthetic and authentic emotion and experience, as in the Kill Bill films or Death Proof 2007, which moved on to another zone of tribal struggle, in their case concerning female protagonists, before his trilogy of historical incitement in Glorious Bastards 2009, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight 2015, where the narrative centres around historical tribal wars rhymed different modes of cinema. When Tarantino would, to a very great extent, remake Reservoir Dogs with The Hateful Eight, the core variance was that with the later film, Tarantino would make each character a representative of a different tribe, rather than a homogenous group, with an odd man out. The impact of Tarantino's directorial approach amounted not just to a scorecard of iconographic flourishes like sharp suits and old tunes. The clear-eyed cinematography Tarantino got from Andre Shukula, who would also shoot Pulp Fiction, spurned most of the stylistic reflexes of 80s action cinema, with few shallow focal planes and little diffused light or flashy filter work. Tarantino and Sakula instead made heavy use of wide-angle lenses to achieve a more igneous effect, epic even on a small scale. There was a touch of irony in the fact that Tony Scott, a doyen of the 80s style of action movie, took on Tarantino's rewritten script for My Best Friend's Birthday as the baroquely shot True Romance, which looked good but felt, by comparison, instantly dated, although the likes of Michael Bay would carry on something of that style. Reservoir Dogs wasn't exactly a work of strict classicism, however, and comes on with a visual language both muscular and skittish. Long, static shots and standoffish camera placements redolent of Antonioni somehow managed to at once unfetter and trap the energy of his actors, alternated with camera gymnastics betraying the immediate influence of Scorsese and particularly Brian De Palma, as if taking the place of an unseen watching presence thrust in amidst the carnage. Reservoir Dogs also established Tarantino's fondness for circumlocutory structuring, employed less to evoke, as with filmmakers like Orson Welles or Alan René, vagaries of time and memory, than to engage traditional narrative propulsion in a different fashion. The flashbacks do more than simply explain backstory, but set up each little act in the core drama, resituating expectations and tension. In this regard, Tarantino revealed himself as one of the few filmmakers to properly understand the dynamic behind the flashback in Vertigo, 1958, and use it as a means of changing the pitch of dramatic intensity. White's vignette is one of slightly rueful friendliness and straightforward aims and desires. Blonde's vignette explains his visceral hatred of cops and just about everyone else, except for Joe and Eddie. Oranges doesn't simply inform us that he's the interloper or how he got shot, but why these two facts are both facets in an extended deed of method acting. Tarantino made no bones about the inherent theatricality of his approach. Many scenes in the warehouse feel like acting exercises. This makes sense given that the insistent motif in the film is one of role-playing, and the lurking suggestion what we're seeing is all a metaphor for Tarantino's days as a sometime actor and general would-be Hollywood player. 
The film quoting is something like the filmmaker's equivalent of an actor trying out different costumes for different characters, busily donning and shedding guises in the hunt for the one that will settle and sell. Perhaps the film's most famous image of pink and white pointing guns at each other in a moment of heated argument is filmed intimately at first, engaged in the ferocity of the moment, but then Tarantino steps back, shooting them from a remove that strands the men in posturing absurdity, and draws the camera away a few paces to reveal Blonde standing watching them whilst lazily sipping on a milkshake. Blonde is the audience, assessing the effectiveness of the performed Makizbo, and he quickly begins provoking White with his own perfect attitude of supine cool. I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan, Bond comments, nailing down both his and White's style hero and generic forebear. The chief tripwire of the plot seems to be Orange's power over White in knowing his name, but this proves to have rather placed him as much in thrall to White. He accepts the rules of his appointed role to the point where he stands around looking anguished and not intervening as White ruthlessly blows away two fellow cops before Orange shoots a woman for the sake of their friendship. Once he's wounded, all boundaries between life and pose vanish, and Orange becomes merely a desperate man, and White the one trying to get him through it. Fake it till you make it indeed. White's comment to Joe, You push that whole woman-man thing too long, and it gets to you after a while, betrays his unease with commitments advisable in his lifestyle, and offers, also, the slightest hint of homoerotic subtext to his attachment to Orange. The longest of the film's flashbacks revolves around the division between life and art in a way that's more overt than Tarantino would usually practice in his films. Orange, real name Freddy, wheedles his way into the bandit's circle. He sets about mastering, at the behest of his handler Holdaway, Randy Brooks, an amusing anecdote for the purposes of furthering his cover. This part of the film might initially seem vaguely extraneous, but it is in truth the very essence of Reservoir Dogs and the mission statement for the rest of Tarantino's career as an exploration of the slippery boundaries between act and life, creation and deconstruction. The anecdote relates how Orange supposedly once sweated through a close encounter with cops and a drug sniffer dog in a railway station washroom whilst carrying a large quantity of weed. Holdaway tells him that you have to be naturalistic, naturalistic as hell, to convince in undercover work. And so Orange's journey mimics the processes of being an actor, meetings in diners, read-throughs, stagey rehearsals, and finally entering the zone of make-believe so intensely the narrative becomes a mini-movie into which Orange projects himself. The blend of Tarantino's directing, Roth's acting, Sekula's shooting, and Sally Menke's editing is at its most ingenious here, as Orange's anecdote jumps locales as he works his way through stages of conviction. Finally, Orange delivers his high-wire monologue before Joe, White, and Eddie, before he is finally glimpsed standing before the cops in his anecdote, recounting it to them. I'm just standing there drenched in panic and all these sheriffs looking at me and they know, man, they can smell it. Sure as that fucking dog can. They can smell it on me. The crowning moment of the anecdote sees Orange jab the button on a hand dryer, momentarily drowning the cops' conversation and drawing their annoyed gaze, including that of their barking dog. But it also seals his victory both imagined and real, the riskiness of the gesture achieves a perfect simulacrum, and Orange has become so convincing, he bends the language of cinematic reality itself.
most notorious portion of Reservoir Dogs and its initial spur to fame is the scene of Blonde's torture of Nash. This scene seems the complete opposite in nature to Orange's story as a portrait of authentic and immediate evil. If Orange is the bullshit artist made good, Blonde is cold truth, providing his own soundtrack when he turns on the radio and tunes in for the 70s Scottish folk rock band Steeler's Wheels song Stuck in the Middle with You, with its spry, insidiously catchy tune and refrain of pleas offered as a cruelly deadpan mockery of the cries Nash can't make with his mouth taped shut. It's amusing uh, to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't going to get. Even here, we're deep in a zone of performative zeal and competition, as Blonde proves he's the one with the show-stopping moves, the one who gives us what we really want. Blonde's taunting little dance to the tune as he gets ready to attack Nash with a straight razor suggests he's having a ball, even as he's nominally the one presenting his literally captive witness with the last word in audience involvement. But the most galvanising choice in this scene was to avert the camera's gaze as Blonde hacks Nash's ear off, camera again playing bystander, who this time has finally found their tolerance limit. The avoidance of bloody pyrotechnics paradoxically makes the moment feel much nastier, partly because it subverts the rules of performance, intimate in refusing to countenance. Tarantino walks the viewer up to the very threshold of unbearable horror, as Blonde's intention of setting Nash on fire is only avoided by the fusillade of bullets Orange shoots at him. This was another superlative piece of sleight of hand on Tarantino's part, as Orange has become virtually forgotten since passing out. Orange's killing of Blonde feels like a heroic gesture, but it's one that ultimately costs the lives of nearly everyone left in the crew. Eddie instantly undercuts it when he returns to the warehouse and shoots Nash dead. Much later in his career, Tarantino would, in the scene of D'Artagnan's death by mauling in Django Unchained, walk up to a similar threshold and then shove characters and audiences over it. Perhaps it's the provocateur's lot to have to constantly ratchet their effects up, but the later film also revises the dynamic scene here, with a notable consequence. Django's self-control makes him, in a way, party to horror, but also enables his ultimate happy ending. His performance is a matter not just of his own life and death, but also for his great love, and by extension, for all of his tribe, where Orange remains to a certain extent a mere dilettante. The relatively green Nash proves to recognise Orange, who doesn't remember him. His native tribe, that of the police, offers no succour, by breaking character, Orange has doomed himself. Except that the film's very end offers Orange one last way to take his role to the limit, as multiple zones of identity and performance collapse in upon each other. White's defence of Orange obliges him to threaten Joe, as the old warlord intends to shoot Orange. Eddie aims at White in retaliation, whilst Pink pleads for a reason unheeded. Faithfulness works like gravity, drawing people to the most immediate orbit, and the logical endpoint for all the macho posturing is reached as the three men gun each other down, leaving only a shocked and bewildered Pink to look around a stage as littered with corpses as the last act of Hamlet. Pink skedaddles with the diamonds, although the faintly heard sounds from outside suggest he gets cornered and captured by the cops. Orange, now twice shot, confesses to the wounded, gasping, broken white that he's a cop. 
By confessing to be a fake, he demands reality, the consequence of that revelation. White cradles his head like a baby and squeals in heartbreak, but seems to deliver the wished-for coup de grace, even in defiance of the police who burst in at the last moment and gun him down in turn. By one standard, it's the traditional end of a gangster movie, a portrayal of greed, violence and treachery on a path to mutually assured destruction. But by another, it's the ultimate deed of performance. If, as the old canard has it, the only true feat of greatness for an actor is to cross the line into madness, Orange manages the next best thing, to play an outlaw until you die like one. And that's all for this instalment of the Film Fredonia podcast. You can read this in written essay form on the website filmfredonia.com, as well as over 500 other movie reviews. I try to present new material both on the website and or this podcast every 12 days, give or take a few, so please be sure to keep an eye out for further instalments. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Bye for now. Call the doctor, woke him up and said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I said, Doctor.